Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, there's some black Bibles around the worship center here. You can grab one of those. Feel free to get up even now. And find 1 Peter. It's toward the end of our Bibles. We've been in a series in this book for a few weeks now. We're calling it Between Two Worlds. Peter writes to Christians as those who are really between two worlds. They have one foot in this world and another foot in the world to come. They're chosen by God, and yet, at least in this context, they've been exiled from the world. They've been cast aside by the world around them. They have joy alongside of grief and suffering. That's what Peter writes about in verses 6 through 9, our passage for this morning. Of chapter 1, he says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." You may have noticed that our verses for today begin and end with the theme of joy. The beginning of verse 6, in this you rejoice. And then the end of verse 8, it's even heightened here. Rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. The Bible talks about joy many, many times over. But perhaps nowhere in the Bible do we get a more potent and rich if not complicated and complex description of what joy is, then in verse 8, rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Go ahead and just try to draw that. Right? What's that look like? I mean, what does joy look like? It's not just a happy face. What is joy? It's almost indefinable, isn't it? It's something that we know when we have it. We know when we're getting close, maybe. And Peter says that we rejoice with joy if we're in Christ. And that joy is an inexpressible joy. It's full of glory. How do you draw that? How do you paint full of glory? It's not just inexpressible or undrawable. It's unreasonable, according to 1 Peter. It's unreasonable because it doesn't go along with the circumstances. Circumstances can be quite different than the joy that sits within them. This joy is otherworldly, then. It's what we're all after. It starts in God's saving work. That's the first thing for us to consider. Christians rejoice in God's saving work. You notice verse 6 begins, in this you rejoice, but that's not just a floating verse in the middle of nowhere. There's stuff that came before. And when he says, in this you rejoice, he's pointing us backwards, isn't he? In what do we rejoice? Well, in everything that's come before, the first five verses. 
And what he's described there is a whole salvation package. Everything that we have in Jesus. A new identity. A new citizenship. Look down in your Bibles as I remind you of what we've already seen in these earlier verses. As we remind ourselves about what Christians should rejoice in. We Christians rejoice that we, in verse 1, are elect, chosen. In verse 2, foreknown by God himself, by God the Father. We were cleansed by Jesus' blood on the cross where he died in our place, taking our punishment and giving us the freedom from our sin if we are in him. So we've been set apart or sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience to the gospel. We've obeyed that call to repent and believe, to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior because the Spirit has set us apart to do it. Why? Well, because we've been born again, verse 3. We've been born anew, born from above. Jesus died and was born again, in a sense, raised to new life. And he leads us into a new world, a new creation, a new being. We now have a living hope. A living hope because we have a living Savior. No small part of this living hope is that we have a heavenly inheritance. We've been adopted into his family in this new birth. And this inheritance is in heaven. Where people can't get to it or change it or steal it or mess with it. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, verse 4. We have this inheritance which is nothing less than God himself, not gold crowns or a mansion over the hilltop. We Christians believe that in the end, the best part of all is that we get God. The gospel is God, John Piper says. And we're in Christ Through him we have all these things. We have God himself. We have this inheritance. We have the new birth, the new creation. It's all ours, but it's not all here yet. It will be fully revealed in the last time, verse 5 says, when Jesus comes again. Until then, we rejoice because we're kept by God's power. We're guarded and protected by God's doing. So it's as good as done. It's a rich, manifold work of grace. It's glorious. It's progressive. It's his work from start to finish. It stretches from eternity past to eternity future. It's a Trinitarian work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each doing distinct works of grace for us personally, for our salvation. We Christians rejoice in this. And we rejoice in this like we rejoice in nothing else. We should rejoice in it more. We're working on it. But God is working it in us to be thankful for this. Notice that Peter here doesn't begin verse 6 by saying, Christians should rejoice in this. He says, in this you rejoice. Part of the new birth is that you've now been born with new desires and new loves, new things to be thankful for. Do you know this kind of joy, this kind of thankfulness, this unreasonable, unthinkable, inexpressible joy? If not today, embrace it. With joy, receive it. With joy, call on him and be saved. 
receive what Jesus has done on the cross, dying for sins, being raised victoriously. This is the path to joy. And we Christians, remember, I said, we rejoice in this. It's what we do. It's who we are. Do you? Are you rejoicing in it? Are you growing in rejoicing in your salvation? The Apostle Paul is such a great model of this for us. He begins his letters oftentimes with a prayer for that church, and it'll go several verses. And in these prayers, it's just littered with language of thankfulness for our salvation, for the gospel, for the cross, or for who Jesus is. It's like Paul can hardly mention anything about the gospel or Jesus without spinning around about it, without bringing up other words and unfolding a description, using phrase after phrase about it. It's, we've said before, it's like a tornado of praise going over the same area again and again and whirling up higher and higher in thoughts and affections. Paul does this whenever he comes to the gospel. He sits long on it and he gets happy in it. Christians rejoice in their salvation. Secondly, Christians rejoice despite various trials. Despite various trials. That's the whole point of verse 6, really. It says, in this you rejoice, and that points us backwards, the this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, verse 7 will say more than that. Christians can rejoice despite their trials. But let's just simply start with that. That's what verse 6 says. Christians rejoice not at their suffering, but through their suffering. Christians don't enjoy suffering. Peter doesn't pretend that suffering isn't suffering. It's hard. It's difficult. But there's something deeper going on in the midst of it. For those to whom Peter was writing in the first century, their trials were of a specific kind. Persecution. Persecution for being Christians. Not just suffering, like stubbing your toe or getting fired or, or losing some of your income uh, with the stock market or, or having a relationship problem with a cousin or a spouse or whatever. Peter's talking about suffering for righteousness' sake. Look at chapter 4, just to remind you of this. He says in verse 12 of chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So they were suffering and would suffer more in the days to come for being Christians. They've been cast out of society. They've been exiled from the social and economic system around them. But what Peter says here, at least in chapter 1, about suffering need not be limited to persecution. Because he says in verse 6, various trials. 
They've been grieved by various trials and would be grieved by various trials. Even in one church or in one city, the Christians there would have various kinds of trials, just like you and I do. Just like in other parts of the world, there are some who are persecuted for being Christians, and and rarely here in America do we receive that kind of physical threat or persecution. Some of us are in trials right now. Some of us will be soon. Some trials are hard. Some are a minor inconvenience, an annoyance. Some go a long time. Some are momentary. Some of them are our fault, and some aren't. Some of them are caused by an evil person, and some of it is from God in some mysterious way. So there are various trials, and it encourages us that whatever we're going through, whatever we will go through, however last year went, whatever you're nervous about for tomorrow, next week, next month, Peter speaking to us in our various trials, not just persecution, whatever comes. And he says that trials are grievous. You've been grieved by various trials. He uses a strong word in the original Greek. It had to do with agony and pain, this being grieved. Peter doesn't pretend suffering isn't suffering. It's painful. It's grievous. It's not just external. It's internal. There's internal agony and turmoil. That's part of the trial or suffering equation. But these grievous trials of various kinds can't get to our salvation. Remember, our inheritance is kept in heaven, undefiled, It won't there fade or perish. Our trials can't undo what God has done for us. And if trials can't touch our salvation, then trials can't touch the joy of our salvation. Even though you're going through various trials, in this you rejoice. Salvation joy should be impervious to the cold water of suffering. Grief and joy in the Bible can exist simultaneously. They're not mutually exclusive. That's mysterious, but I think we all know that even from our own experience, don't we? It's not just in the Bible, but we know from our own experience that, well, it's the best of times and the worst of times. Now, uh, one of the things, one of the first things I learned when moving to Albuquerque was why we're host to one of the biggest balloon festivals in the world. You know why. The box, right? That weird atmospheric thing where winds at one elevation blow one direction and then at another elevation they blow the opposite direction. Very handy for balloonists who like to be together. They can hang out. They don't just go in one big line and then scatter everywhere. It's convenient for us photo takers. It's like we all say, okay, squeeze in together. Everyone get together. And they just keep doing that until it gets really busy up there and you take your photo. Well, verse 6 here is a lot like the box. At one level, the winds are blowing south. And that... At another plane, a higher level, it's blowing the opposite direction. 
Something different's taking place. Two things at the same time. Charles Spurgeon, a pastor in the 1800s, said this, Let me be lying upon a bed of sickness and just revel in that one thought. Before God made the heavens and the earth and laid the pillars of the firmament in their golden sockets, he set his love upon me. Upon the breast of the great high priest he wrote my name. And in his everlasting book it stands, never to be erased, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Why, this may make a man's soul leap within him, and all the heaviness that the infirmities of the flesh may lay upon him shall be but as nothing. For his tremendous current of his overflowing joy shall sweep away all the mill dam of his grief. I don't know what mill dam is, but... You get the point. Bursting and overleaping every obstacle, it shall overflood all his sorrows till they are drowned and covered up and shall not be mentioned any more forever. Like the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, we Christians were sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are having nothing and we possess everything. Two levels, two currents, two things going in opposite directions. At the same time, Christians between two worlds. And part of the trial equation is that they're necessary. Peter uses that word, verse 6, if necessary. And when he says if necessary, the if doesn't mean that some trials aren't necessary. And he doesn't mean that for some Christians they may not come. What he means is that God will bring us trials if and when necessary. Whatever trials we have, God thinks they're necessary. Later in chapter 4, Peter will will tell us that our suffering is according to God's will. Verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. God's in it. He doesn't just know. He designs it. He's behind it. We Christians can rejoice despite trials because a good and wise and sovereign God is behind them and has purposes for them. One of the purposes is right here, verse 7. It's the third thing Christians rejoice in. Christians rejoice in the testing of their faith. They rejoice in the testing of their faith. Verse 6 said, you've been grieved by various trials, and then verse 7 tells us why. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Now here's where my Albuquerque box balloon illustration falls apart a bit. Our trials aren't blowing in an opposite direction of our salvation. They're blowing in the same direction. God's using the trials in our salvation. Trials are part of our salvation in a sense. Oh, we're not saved by our trials, like you do enough hard time here and surely he'll let you in because you've had it so bad. No, we're not saved by our trials. 
But God has saving and persevering and strengthening purposes for our trials. One of those purposes is this word testing. Now, testing our faith may sound more negative to you than it should. You might think, that sounds like God is suspicious. Like a math teacher gives a test. Let's see how you studied last night. We'll see how you did. Well, God doesn't test our faith like that. It's not for God's sake that our faith is tested. He doesn't need to know like he, he's waiting to find out the answer. He knows. It's his work, right? From start to finish, it's his work. So why does he test us? Well, you might not like that language of testing because it sounds like, mm, I may not pass the test. And there's some truth to that. Some Christians don't pass the test. Some Christians go through a season of suffering and it begins with the question, why? And it goes south. Why you? And then pretty soon there's no you there. Some so-called Christians go through a process like that. But the testing of our faith is for our good Testing might sound like it's suspicious. It might sound like it's going to go bad if it's tested. But again, if it's God's work, it will prove itself real. Not perfectly so, but genuinely so. So the testing of our faith is the proving of our faith. And it's also the purifying of our faith. It means more assurance for us. When we go through suffering and come out this other side still believing in Jesus, that's a good thing. We could do better than just believing in him afterwards, but it's just a good thing at a base level to go through suffering and say, he's the Lord, he's still the Lord, he's still my Savior. It's not only good, it's really good. It's more precious than gold. What's more precious than gold? Well, it's a phrase, and it's put very nicely in the ESV translation. The tested genuineness of your faith is what's more precious than gold. The whole thing. Your faith and the testing of it, and then the proving of that faith that it's genuine, all of that is more precious than gold. And it's tested by fire. This is a frequent illustration in Scripture. Being tested like gold in the furnace and coming out the other side more pure. It's a multifaceted illustration. It's a great illustration because gold is precious. And Peter means to contrast that here. Yeah, gold is precious, but faith is more precious. Genuine faith is even more precious than gold. Gold is precious, and it's proven to be so by fire. Someone decides what kind of gold it is, right? It gets stamped 14K or 24K because gold has been purified. And it's purified by fire. It's melted down. The impurities rise to the top. And then those impurities are scooped away. What you have is more pure gold. It becomes worth more through the fire than having avoided any fire. So what fire is to gold, 
trials are to our faith. They're painful. They're fiery. It's hot. Just like fire, trials burn. Some of them are painful to our souls. Others painful to our bodies and soul. But they're purposeful. And Peter gives us a clear hint. So that, in verse 7, there's purpose there. There's God's design behind that. And the purpose is that trials would prove the genuineness of our faith. Like the way fire separates gold from what isn't gold, so trials help separate faith from what isn't of faith. We could say that the smelting of our faith burns away all that isn't faith, but might be mistaken as faith. See, there are all kinds of good things, like just good intentions or goodwill or hope. Love, people love without being in Christ and having this glorious salvation package that comes in him. There's a lot of good stuff there. A lot of good stuff that could be mistaken for the real gold thing. Trials come and separate. That's not a fun thing, but it's a good thing. So let me ask you, how much is your assurance worth? Assurance of salvation. Assurance of his love. How much is that worth to you? Peter says it's worth way more than a lot, a lot of gold. A lot of purified, good gold. How much is growth worth to you? We Christians are being made into the image of Christ. We're being more like him. Slowly, yes, but truly, we're being made like Jesus. How much is Christ-likeness worth to you? How much is more Christ-likeness worth to you? Is it like gold? Peter says so. Growth is a big thing in the Bible. Christian growth is a big thing. We're supposed to grow. Peter talks about that. Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babes long for the milk, we long for the word of God so we can grow in it. But grace grows best in winter. Doesn't it? Don't we know this from our own experience again? Oh, we, we'd like to think otherwise when a new season of suffering is beginning. When something's hard, our first reaction is to get it to stop, change it. And where we can change it, of course we should. Where we, should, where we can pray for God to change it, sure, do it. But we often forget how The last time we went through something like this, we prayed more. We went to the Bible more. We sought him more. Priorities were clearer. He refined us. Impurities were removed. Sin's enticement is less energetic when suffering's beaten you up. So from this perspective, it's not just that we can have joy despite our trials, we can actually, in a sense, rejoice in our trials. James 1 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He goes on in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God's promised to those who love him. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in Romans 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit. These are good things, right? Hope, a living hope. We want more hope. We want more character. We want more endurance, more strength, more patience, more steadfastness. Okay, here's the road. It's called suffering. Occasionally, God uses other roads, but often he uses that road too alongside. Suffering brings reality closer to our perception. It shows us what really matters and what's real, what's really happening behind the scenes. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, what Jesus told him Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul concludes, therefore, I will boast or have confidence in or rejoice in all the more gladly my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's not silly doublespeak. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's when I know my own weakness, then I sense his strength. I know whatever strength is there isn't my own. You've got to come to the end of your rope to feel supernatural, Christ-given strength. Paul says, I glory in that, boast in that, rejoice in that. God's using trials for our good. Like Joseph told his jerk brothers, the end of the story, in Genesis 50, Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The very thing you were doing to my harm, he was doing for my good. And get this, he was even doing it for you and your good, stupid brothers. We Christians know this verse well, and we should. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. They work together for our good, not for our ease, not for our comfort, not for merely our simple enjoyment, but for our overall spiritual good. He's got a plan. The next verse, after Romans 8, 28, says, He's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. His plan is to shape us into the image of Jesus, to be more like him. I grew up in Michigan. In the middle of winter, if you went by certain parks at certain times, you'd see uh, an ice sculpting contest or festival. And It's fascinating. If you've ever seen this, you know. It's fascinating to see them begin with this block of ice and then Take a chainsaw and knock a chunk here. You don't know what's coming. They do. They 
knock a chunk there, poke it in here, twist there, grind there. They put down the chainsaw and pick up chisels, and they're chiseling here, knocking that off there. Eventually it's scraping, they scrape it along like this. And, and the last step is they're taking warm water and just smoothing it out. Well, it's kind of like that with God's plan for our sanctification or making us holy or making us into the image of Christ. He has a plan for us. And sometimes he takes out the chainsaw and knocks a chunk off. Unlike ice, it hurts when he does that to us. But he's good in it. He's good in it. Sometimes it's not a chainsaw, it's just a chisel. Sometimes he just says there, there with some warm water and smooths us out a little bit. But he's behind it, he's using it. It's the testing of our faith, and it's good. It's more precious than gold. Fourth, though, Christians rejoice in the outcome of their faith. The second half of verse 7 talked about this. It talked about the goal of this fiery testing that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the end of the age, when Jesus comes again, what we want, what trials will bring to the Christian, what genuine faith, genuine faith wants to do is to bring praise and glory and honor. That's the result of our salvation. That's the end of the road, which is really just the beginning of a whole new glorious highway. It'll be the end of suffering when Jesus comes again. The end of suffering. Revelation 21 and 22 talks about the new heaven and the new earth, and it describes it with a lot of no mores. No more death, no more suffering, no more sin, no more sickness, no more curse, no more evil, no more threat. There's a lot of no more, including that is the end of suffering when Jesus comes back. But when Jesus comes back, it's not just the end of suffering. It's this beginning of a whole new world, a whole new creation. Not just the absence of things bad, but the the fuller introduction of everything good and right. He will make all things new. And we will be happy. Like we've never been happy. Oh, I know you're tempted to think of heaven as probably the boringest place on earth. Doing any one thing for a long time, you probably think is boring, no matter how good it is. I mean, the marital bed, hour five, hour six, no, eventually you give up, right? Big food, you know, dessert, your favorite meal, eventually you go, I've had enough of it, it's okay, push it away. Heaven will be a lot of the same stuff, I guess, but a whole lot of new stuff too, and it all has to do with God himself, and we can't imagine how unbored we'll be. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. What will heaven's business be? Oh, caring for each other, love, about family reunions. There's this marriage supper thing. We'll eat with Jesus, okay. Worship, of course, there's got to be worship there, right? What will heaven be? It'll be joy. Our work will be all those things unto our joy. And if joy is the serious business of heaven, then it's also our serious business now 
We have to fight for it with an eye on what's to come. Verse 9 talks about obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And that looks like a big future thing. What we get at the end, right? Sort of like the way verse 7 talked about the revelation of Jesus Christ when, when we give praise and glory and honor in the fullest and most complete sense. Well, verse 9 here is actually talking about the present tense. Look at what it says in verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. Most English translations miss this or at least don't show us this. This is written in the present tense. It's saying you are already receiving the end and the goal of your salvation. Back in verse 5, salvation was this end time thing, this final day, the, the big salvation when Jesus comes again. But here in verse 9, salvation of your souls, you're getting it now. The outcome of your faith, you're obtaining it now. In the testing of your faith, you're getting joy now. You have Jesus now. You have all of his promises now. Now and not yet, more still to come. But, but you see, we're already receiving this salvation. We're between two worlds. We're already receiving a glory-filled joy And our present relationship with Jesus is case in point. That's the last point. The fifth thing in your notes, Christians rejoice in their present experience of Jesus. They rejoice in their present, not future, present experience of Jesus. Oh, yes, more later, but look at verse 8. Now, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. All this in the present. Oh, surely in the new heaven and the new earth, it's much greater. We will rejoice with a joy that is even more inexpressible, even more filled with glory. We will see him one day. And when we see him, we'll be like him. But, Now, we don't see him, we still believe in him. We believe in him, and we love him, and we rejoice in him. How can Christians rejoice in the midst of trials? Because even though they don't see Jesus, they have Jesus. They will have more of him. They love him, and they rejoice with a joy that's Just full of glory. You can't describe it. What is joy? I don't know. I can't describe it. How do Christians rejoice like this? I don't know. I can't really tell you. It's indescribable. It's inexpressible. Their words aren't aren't really fitting for it. Paul talks like this in Philippians 4 when he says that in the midst of certain trials, when we pray and cast our burdens on the Lord and we don't worry, God grants or gives a supernatural peace. Peace beyond understanding. Peace that doesn't make sense. Peace that doesn't fit the circumstances. Miracle peace to our souls in the midst of turmoil around us. Well, that's what Peter's talking about here. Unreasonable 
inexpressible joy. Even though we don't see him, that's the nature of faith. We don't now see him, but we believe. Jesus said, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet have believed. How do we believe if we haven't seen? Well, someone told us news. They told us information. They told us about a person. Christianity isn't just a set of beliefs, though it is that. It's not just new behavior, though it is that. It's a person, Jesus. And we believe in him and we enjoy him. We love him. How do we do that more? If we don't see him, how do we love him and rejoice in him? Especially, how do we rejoice with this kind of inexpressible and glory-filled joy? Well, for now, we rejoice in him and we see him. We love him and believe in him through his word. He's revealed his word to us. And we go there to see him and to be made like him. I think this is implied in 2 Corinthians 3 when Paul says, we're beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image, the same image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. Implied in that is that we behold him in his word. We don't behold him in a painting. We don't behold him in a stained glass. We don't behold him in Jerusalem. We don't go to a church to see him. We behold him in words for now. One day, face to face. Until then, his word, and we commune with him in his word. He speaks to us and speaks to us afresh. And we pray to him and talk to him and sing to him and come together and worship him. Let me end with a story from J.C. Ryle. He was uh, an Anglican bishop back 150 years ago or so. And he writes this story about the happiest child he ever met. I think it summarizes a lot of what we talked about this morning. From a little short book called Boys and Girls Playing, he writes this kind of long account about the happiest child he ever saw. He says, It was a little girl whom I once met traveling in a railway carriage. We were both going on a journey to London, and we traveled a great many miles together. She was only eight years old, and she was blind. She had never been able to see at all. She had never seen the sun, the stars, the sky, the grass, the flowers, the trees, the birds, and all those pleasant things which you see every day of your life. But still, she was quite happy. She was by herself, poor little thing. She had no friends or relatives to take care of her on her journey, but she was quite happy and content. She said when she got into the carriage, Tell me how many people there are in the carriage, because I'm quite blind and can see nothing. A gentleman asked her if she was afraid. She said, No, I'm not afraid. I've traveled before, and I trust God. But I soon found out, Ryle says, why she was so happy. And what do you think it was? She loved Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ loved her. She had sought Jesus Christ, and she found him. I began to talk to her about the Bible, and I soon saw that she knew a great deal of it, despite being blind and unable to read it. 
Dear, dear children, you can't think how many things in the Bible this poor little girl knew. I only wish that every grown person in England knew as much as she did. I'll tell you some of them. She talked to me about sin, about Adam and Eve and the fall. Then she talked about Jesus Christ. She told me about the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, about him sweating drops of blood, about the soldiers nailing him to the cross, about the spear that pierced his side. Oh, she said, how very good it was of him to die for us, and such a cruel death. How good he was to suffer for our sins. I asked her what part of the Bible she liked best. She told me she liked all the history of Jesus, the Gospels. But the chapters she was most fond of were the last three chapters of the book of Revelation. I had a Bible with me, so I took it out and read these chapters to her as we went along. When I was done, she began to talk about heaven. She said, think how nice it'll be to be there. There'll be no more sorrow, no crying, no tears. And Jesus Christ will be there, for it says, the Lamb is the light of it. And we will always be with him. And besides this, there'll be no night there. There'll be no need of candle or light or even the sun. Dear children, just think of this poor little blind girl. Think of her taking pleasure in, take, in talking of Jesus. Think of her rejoicing in the account of heaven where there shall be no more sorrow or night. Dear children, are you as happy and as cheerful as she was? You're not blind. You have eyes and can run about and see everything and go where you like and read as much as you please. But are you as happy as this poor little blind girl? Oh, if you wish to be happy in this world, remember my advice. Do as this little girl did. Love Jesus Christ, and he will love you. Seek him early, and you shall find him. Or, in the words of verse 8, we don't now see him, but we will. We don't now see him, but we believe in him, and we love him, and we rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. That's what Christians do. That's what we will do in the age to come. That's what he calls us to do now.